I'm Grant Oliphant, and this is We Can Be. I need the Black Brothers to stand up. I need the women in this room to stand up. If you are a proud member of LGBTQ, if you are a a person who practices a religion that is not Christianity, if you are a person in this room that lives in this country but was not born in this country, please stand up. You are the people who live in fear in this country every day through a microaggression or through some form of American terrorism that is happening every day. You are who the Just City is for. The growing Black Lives Matter movement and the COVID-19 pandemic have made crystal clear structural race and class inequities that our country has perpetuated for over two centuries. But what if we could design cities, their structures, infrastructures, and public spaces in ways that lessen that inequity and foster a more just community? Today's guest is Toni Griffin, and she has been studying, teaching, and putting into action the concept of just cities for the past decade. She is Professor in Practice of Urban Planning at the Harvard Graduate School of Design and leads the Just City Lab, a research platform for developing values-based planning methodologies and tools. Tony is the co-editor of the 2020 book Patterned Justice, a fascinating look at the process communities can take in identifying the unique values, assets, and opportunities that they can enlist in making their neighborhoods more just. Through her New York City-based Urban AC consulting firm, she has led transdisciplinary planning and urban design projects for clients in cities with long histories of spatial and social injustice. In 2016, President Barack Obama appointed Tony to the United States Commission of Fine Arts, and she is a trusted advisor of mayors, civic leaders in Washington, D.C., Memphis, and St. Louis, and more, and I might add in Pittsburgh and at the Heinz Endowments. Tony, welcome to We Can Be. Thank you so much for having me, Grant. I'm really excited to be in conversation with you today. Well, you and I have known each other for a number of years and worked on a variety of projects, and we've been talking about this issue of how design contributes to inequity in society. I want to start off by talking about how you got there. So you grew up in Chicago and practiced architecture there for nearly a decade, and then you took on the role of Director of Planning and Community Development for the city of Newark under then-Mayor Cory Booker. How did those early experiences in Chicago and Newark influence your shift to urban planning and eventually to your deep dive into how thoughtful, people-centered design can facilitate urban justice? My education was a traditional architectural one. I went to the University of Notre Dame, studied architecture in its most traditional sense, the design of buildings and structures, went on to work at Skidmore, Wellington, Merrill, where most of the architecture work, actually all of the architecture work I did, was not in the United States, but in London and Barcelona. And coming back off of those projects and then switching into urban design and planning was when I had the opportunity to work in my hometown of Chicago and began to understand this broader context of place and making of place, but more importantly, a broader set of actors who are actually involved in the building of cities. The building of cities is a political process. Not only are elected officials and policymakers, but it involves the democratic process of city dwellers themselves. And I just became increasingly fascinated by the dynamics of how cities are built. So for the first time in my professional career, I'm working with people that look like me, community developers, activists, and residents. 
all involved in this conversation about how to build cities. And then my first real public sector job was actually working for Mayor Anthony Williams in Washington, D.C. And for the first time, really fusing together what it means to design around a political economy, to design around a set of environmental factors, to design around a set of social factors. And what I began to notice in each of these contexts, and certainly then moving into Newark, was that there was this repetition of underlying conditions from city to city and how racially segregated our cities still were, the disparities and inequities, not only in terms of the quality of place in neighborhoods, but the social, environmental, and economic conditions that situated or created those conditions and that we were still trying to design our way around. That's actually the question I wanted to pick up on, because here we are, in this, what many of us hope will be an epic reset in terms of how our society views historic racial inequity, you know, occasioned in part by the murder of George Floyd, by the inequity that has become transparent as a result of the pandemic. It's hard to figure out the place of design in the context of that. So when you talk to people about why the concept of a just city matters or why those patterns that you just described don't just happen, why does it matter? It matters because there are these cycles of moments where conditions of injustice are revealed to us or amplified. The underlying injustice that sits beneath any of these crises, be it the health pandemic, the justice uprisings, the annual natural disaster that occurs. To me, design defined very broadly as the design of policy, the design of place, the design of systems, the design of processes, like democratic processes. Design can have a role, I think, in dismantling facilitating the different types of systems and structures that are at play, whether they be physical or social or economic or environmental, that we have the opportunity to tackle. And I think how we're not only tackling the symptom, but how we're tackling the root cause of the condition. Um, so to introduce the program and the format of the workshop today, I'd now like to welcome to the podium Tony L. Griffin. By 2010, Detroit had become the poster child for an American city in crisis. There was a housing collapse, an auto industry collapse, and the population had plummeted by 25% between 2000 and 2010. By 2010, I had also been asked by the Kresge Foundation and the city of Detroit to join them in leading a citywide planning process for the city create a shared vision for its future. Obviously, it's completely absurd that a single person, let alone a planner, could save a city. But our profession could play a role in helping the city to think about how it would recover from its severe crisis. You've now looked at so many cities. You're clear that, first of all, there are commonalities in the chronic and systematized injustices in cities across the U.S. You just described some of them. But you also 
are clear that each city is unique in ways that make a cookie cutter approach to solving this. You know, there's there's some magical uniform design template that you can just apply in every city that will right. make a new type of urban design possible. And I'm curious if they're different but alike, how you encourage people to think about what are some of those differences from city to city that they need to be mindful of? And how do you consider that in your work? Certainly, there are tactical solutions that are replicable, and certainly there are some underlying conditions that are redundant across cities. Where I think our work at the Just City Lab was trying to intervene was to say that despite those similarities, there are fundamental political, cultural, social differences that dictate how communities have conversations about these difficult issues, how they set up shared values for those issues, and how they measure the outcome and impact. If we can call an injustice an injustice, that's one thing. But not every location will identify the same injustices as critical or primary or essential to what they're experiencing as part of their current challenge. You know, an injustice in the city of Gary is going to look different than an injustice in the city of Austin, at least how they choose to define it. Therefore, the shared value or vision they may have for themselves is likely to also be different. Hmm. So we wanted to create a tool and a process by which we did not start to create language and rhetoric that became so ubiquitous, it became hard for policymakers and citizens to really discern whether or not interventions we do as planners make a difference before them to first articulate a clear and very nuanced and authentic notion of what was unjust about their context, what values were necessary to lean into more justice, and then from that, be able to craft more tactical solutions. What is it like when you see communities use this tool What are some of the successes for you when it is done well? It has allowed people to have difficult conversations that are often rooted in race and class and generation. It's allowed them to more easily find common ground around values that they're aspiring to despite those differences to then do the deeper and more specific work of futuring interventions, solutions, et cetera. In doing that, it's allowed people, we find, to be much more articulate about the types of goals and objectives that they're trying to achieve. Mm. So the more specific it allows people to get, I think it creates a clear pathway towards the work of developing future outcomes and solutions that are closer to the shared values that they've come to create. And then, you know, the project that we did with you, Pattern Justice, has been a way to experiment with how designers can take that value proposition and translate it into different forms of design action, policy action, programmatic action, building action open space, natural systems action, or even engagement action. Yeah, so let's talk about the book for a moment and the experience in Pittsburgh, because you've done work across the U.S., across, you know, Europe, Africa, South America. You've worked with this amazing range of cities, but you've taken all of that experience and brought it to bear on your observations in four Pittsburgh neighborhoods, Beachview, East Liberty Garfield, 
Hazelwood and the Middle Hill District. I'm curious about why those specific neighborhoods and what for you were the most important takeaways from the work that you did there? Well, there are many, many takeaways, so I'll parse them out so that I don't have a long ramble. In consultation with you and other partners, we wanted to make sure to choose a typology of neighborhoods that represented different states of being, neighborhoods that are perhaps more stable, and that's obviously very relative to neighborhoods that have had a long-standing history of disinvestment, to neighborhoods that have been changing rapidly that some may call gentrification. We sought out to determine if within each of those typologies there were unique or similar conditions of injustice. From that research, we found that some of those neighborhoods had some particularly unique conditions. Topography, I think, was one of the most obvious differences in in the relationship of topography and accessibility. Demographics of each of the neighborhoods were differences in the way in which we compare that to different socioeconomic conditions. So there are some conditions that are very unique to place. There's some conditions that are very unique to the trend of the typology of change. And then we found that there were some conditions that were happening across the board. We paired different people in conversation with one another, representing different parts of the neighborhood, different disciplines, to hear from their perspective as they live and work in these communities, how they saw similarities and differences, to see if they aligned or not around how they observed patterns of injustice, but also how they defined what a just city could be, what values were important to them. Today, uh, we're hosting conversations about urban justice and injustice in Pittsburgh. Uh, This is part of a project called Pattern Justice, Design Languages for Just Pittsburgh. My name is Jordan Hicks. I am originally from Hazelwood, born and raised. Peace. My name is D.S. Kensel. I live, work, and play in Garfield. My name is Monica Ruiz. I am the executive director of Casa San Jose. Our offices are located in Beachview. I'm Father Paul Abernathy. I'm the chief executive officer of the Neighborhood Resilience Project, and I live in the Hill District now. Things are happening. Transformation on a physical sense is happening, but transformation of the people who live there isn't happening in a way that's equitable, that's accurate, that's fair. We can't look at the Hill District for being the Hill District as it is currently and blame the Hill District because there were certain decisions that were made that prompted the Hill District to be what it is, that's prompted Hazelwood to be what it is. The market is moving fast. All this new development in the city of Pittsburgh where are the people who are considered low income going to be in the next 10 to 15 years? And this region in particular has a history of unjust policy, unjust plans, oftentimes justice, or rather injustice and gentrification. Its goal is to erase culture. Yeah, it's about setting a new standard around these issues of basic humanity. Things are going to get worse unless they get better. There's no like idle. Right? If you're not moving forward, you're going backwards. We have to start to mend these relationships and be real. Working within communities, seeing the needs of the community as they see them through their eyes, finding out how those things can be solved, and then implementing those things. Just so much needs to be done. There's just so much, like the stairs, right? Why is that cone there? Why has that cone been there for so long? Yeah. Like our parks. I did call about it. Good. <laughs> a while ago, though. It's not good. But like even the parks in Beachview, like. 
And what you have done is identify patterns that emerge and how we talk about them. And you actually use this notion of pattern language. Mm -hmm. What would be a good example of pattern language just to break it down for folks who are listening? Pattern language is the title of a seminal piece of urban design work produced in 1977 by Christopher Alexander. All of my life, I've spent trying to learn how to produce living structure in the world. Towns, streets, buildings, rooms, gardens. The initial ideas that materialized in the published pattern language was first of all, of course, just to try and get a handle on some of the physical structures that might make the environment nurturing. And secondly, to do this in a way that would allow this to happen on a really large scale. And their proposition was city making is the combination of a set of tactical solutions that when combined begin to create neighborhoods or districts or cities Mm. or a house or a room. There's a combination of over 400 patterns within his book, and it walks the reader through the way in which you can begin to look at a set of problems, combine a set of patterns to create a particular set of outcomes. We took the foundation of that structure and we applied that just city lens to that. So we're wanting to understand the more political and cultural implications of the problem. Is it something that is contributing to an injustice so that the work we do as designers is now trying to remediate for that injustice? Some of the interesting patterns that we came up with organize themselves into these three big categories. One is what you call the space of the public, where we're talking about the public realm, that with which we all should feel equal rights and responsibilities for. So that's parks and streets and your beautiful topography. A second category was related to neighborhood change. So that's everything from our commercial corridors to how development happens, housing, and even looking at the issue of vacant land and vacant buildings. And then our third category of patterns, which was around something we called mind, body, and soul. Here we were really looking at the intersection between people and place, how health affects our body, and that has something to do with spatial environment and the health of our environment. Identity, how we see ourselves reflected in the built environment, our notions of belonging, notions of memory, because there were some neighborhood typologies that did suffer from vacant land, how that loss of memory, cultural memory, place memory Mm. exists. And then the last one that was around social connection, the way in which design can facilitate better social interaction, belonging, safety, and security. So within those three different categories, we came up with 50 patterns of injustice and a corresponding pattern of justice to address that condition. We have designed in our uh, Just City Lab the Just City Index. Its goal is to expand the language we use to articulate what it means to have a just city. Not just relying on something called equity, something called sustainability, something called resiliency. Because those frames typically come with a definition and they ask you and your community to fit it. This index of 50 values asks you to take those 50 values in your community and have your community craft a manifesto for what it means to be just for them.
I love the way in which you draw the connection between design and even something like mind and body, you know, and, mm-hmm. and spirit. Yeah. I think sometimes the sense that individuals have is that design at the city level kind of just happens. And, you know, what you're pointing to is that there's intentionality that is behind this and change that can also be intentional behind how to improve these places. In Pittsburgh's case, in Pattern Justice, you look at a variety of the geography, and you just mentioned some of it. Steep inclines, unusable hillsides, you know, neighborhoods classically bisected by major highways put down in the middle of what were once thriving African-American neighborhoods in particular. As you looked at those patterns in Pittsburgh, what were some of the solutions that understanding this patterned approach could be brought to bear to fix some of this historic inequity? One of the patterns of injustice that was really striking to some of our students, and this shows up in Beachview and Hazelwood, which was the crumbling stair. So because of the amazing topography you have, which is visually stunning, to traverse that and to move across that geography is can sometimes be difficult. And we were very struck by the condition of the stairs, which in some neighborhoods is essential infrastructure for mm-hmm. mobility. In Beachview, it was very interesting because it has a higher aging population than any of the other two neighborhoods that we have. And the public transportation system, because of the topography, is not as robust. So the reliance on the stair infrastructure was quite critical. And so the students were very drawn to this as a very essential pattern of injustice that existed. Mm -hmm. One student came up with Bright City Steps, and this was an initiative to invest in the public works infrastructure of the stairs through design and lighting mechanisms and came up with fairly inexpensive ways to create railings, lighting, different types of tread and risers, activation of lighting when someone uses it that's motion-censored. So it's important that it be visible, well-lit, that they invite someone to use them safely in order to create not only greater access and mobility, but to also create the values of beauty, security, and safety. There was another pattern in mind, body, and soul, and it related to this pattern that we call porch stigma. So what's really wonderful about Pittsburgh... Yeah, I love that one, by the way. Yeah, (laughs) it is such an iconic architecture across Mm. all the, the neighborhoods that we found. But there is this kind of stigma to how well they're maintained, what you do and don't put on it. And it's very much tied to socioeconomic conditions. And so in the pattern of justice called Porch Pride, it actually creates this summer event to actually celebrate the different type of quirky porches and porch culture that exist in different neighborhoods. There would be a way for communities to create a porch crawl, like an arts crawl or a progressive dinner. And it could be promoted to different neighborhood groups, getting people out of their own neighborhood and seeing what porch culture is like from community to community. It could be something that attracts tourists that are not from the region. But there would also be a way to subsidize this by funding artists and local organizations to create events and programming around the neighborhood identity, learning neighborhood histories, 
understanding the role of the porch in creating community. So it was also a way to deepen social ties and social mm. capital within community and to destigmatize the notion of a certain aesthetic of place tied to race and class. You always speak in terms of the assets of a place. You know, you're you're not shy about identifying issues that have to be dealt with, but you don't have a deficit mindset in the way in which you approach challenges. And I'm wondering, is there a city as you've done this work that you think is particularly doing things well or has done something especially right in regards to just design? You know, I think many cities have unique examples of the ways in which they're trying to do this work. I think we were able to tap into the range of different patterns that we were for Pittsburgh, in part inspired by some of the stories we heard when we did our neighborhood tours Mm. of what people were telling us that they were already doing. And so I don't think it's because these opportunities and interventions don't exist. I think our challenge now is how are they really scaled up? How are they replicated? And how are they being used to dismantle some of the systemic and structural challenges that many of these projects are trying to work around, right? Mm -hmm. So a lot of the work in justice design can be viewed as a workaround to a barrier that exists. Designers need partnerships and collaborations with folks like you in philanthropy, with our elected officials and policymakers, with developers and corporations and businesses, because the real work is in the dismantling of those extractive, exclusionary, discriminatory practices and policies. This, for me, sums up your way of approaching things well. In talking about St. Louis, you basically said, and I'm paraphrasing, but you said St. Louis has 99 problems, but it also has 99 opportunities too. And here I am quoting, eradicate divides, correct inequalities, and advance innovation and justice. You know, when we think about from a design standpoint that some of the patterns of injustice have been laid down with pretty heavy infrastructure that seems so hard to change, is it fair to say that we really have as many opportunities as we have challenges, do you think? I do. Excellent. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Care to elaborate? (laughs) If I didn't, I wouldn't be creating these design studios and challenging my students to create these volumes of interventions. And so you just quoted from another publication we did for a St. Louis-based studio where those students actually identified 99 conditions of injustice and created 99 solutions for justice. So I do believe that those opportunities are out there. And I think the grand experiment was not only trying to prove that that is true, but to help us all see by revealing the specific types of conditions that contribute to injustice more clearly. 
and by naming them as such. The intent was to create a different type of urgency that perhaps would point us in different directions of solution. Actually, there's you know another piece of your work that I think of in, in the context of the present moment. In 2015, you and your team were major contributors to a study called Public Life and Urban Justice in New York City's mm-hmm. Plazas. And that report investigated the real and potential impacts of public space design on urban justice. Now we're we're in an, a period of time when the Black Lives Matter protest has brought the fight for equity and justice to many of those same public spaces, not just in New York, but around the country. Have you seen an increase in your work as a result in terms of the implications of design of these public spaces for the racial justice movement? Not specifically the public space work, different interests in general around Our collective responsibility to participate and engage in change for African Americans in the field of design and in the field of design, architecture, and planning in particular, there was a push towards the design sector to think more critically about the role we play in contributing to those spaces of injustice, but more importantly, what are we now going to do about it? I don't think we all have the right tools of language to even name the problem, let alone name the solution. Hmm. And so in the school where I teach, uh, Harvard's Graduate School of Design, the first reaction was to think of things to do, the what. And what we're learning now is to first ask ourselves the why. Why does it matter to us individually and as a faculty and as a school that we should care about social justice, that we should care about anti-Black racism, that we should care about dismantling white supremacy, that we should care about justice and equity. And so then that'll get us back to what does this mean for public space? What does this mean for engagement? What does this mean relative to how we invest in cities? And then allowing us to create this tool for both you and your partners and communities to create new solutions for the problems that exist. Terrific. The name of this program is We Can Be, and we always ask our guests to complete that thought because it can be understood as an incomplete thought. We can be what? We can be more just. Tony Griffin, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a delight. So this has been an incredibly rich conversation. Some of the takeaways that will stick with me just begin with the idea that there are patterns of injustice that occur in the physical realm that are a result of disinvestment, devaluation, environmental problems, geography, topography. They become baked in to the way in which patterns of justice and injustice exist in our society. But that also means that we can design differently. The patterns may be similar, but the Solutions really depend on what individual communities have experienced, how they define injustice, what rises to the surface for them. And that's why we need tools like the Just City Index to help us understand a different way of solving the problems in every different community. And I love the way in which pattern justice breaks those out. The space of the public, the neighborhood change that neighborhoods experience, and qualities of mind, body, and soul. And if you want to take away two metaphors for that, the crumbling stair and porch stigma are the perfect metaphors. 
The crumbling stair is not just a symbol of community decline and neglect. They're actually a symbol of community safety, security, beauty, and practicality if we convert them in a way that the community wants. What many people may judge about somebody else's porch can become a beautiful expression of the quirkiness of an individual neighborhood and community and become an asset when we view it collectively. Tony spoke at length about assets, about not viewing the world through a deficit lens, but about the collective possibility that exists, that if we start thinking in terms of opportunities, we all can think about ways we can contribute to solving the problems of patterns of injustice. Patterned behavior, the things that we just keep doing because they're what we've always done, the only way we disrupt that is being aware of what's going on, identifying the patterns, and asking the question that Tony so powerfully did about the why. Why, why, why do we do this? And why can't we change it? And that awareness, coupled with tools that allow us to leverage it, can lead us into a completely different space, remaking the patterns to become patterns for justice as opposed to injustice.